Ammotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambudasa Ammotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambudasa Ammotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambudasa Buddhangdamangsanganamasani So we're about a week or so into the winter retreat, starting to settle into it. It's getting a little quieter. And we're getting a lot of encouragement uh, from our daily readings. Companionship with people who are meditating to watch our minds. We were going over part of the Satipatthana Sutta this morning. Uh, the section on the mind. The Buddha encourages us to, to know a, uh, a mind affected by lust is a mind affected by lust. A mind affected by hate is a mind affected by hate. And a mind unaffected by lust is a mind unaffected by lust. And a mind unaffected by hate is a mind unaffected by hate. And he goes through these, these pairs of a mind having a particular condition or not having that particular condition. So, hate, lust, delusion, um, distraction, contraction. And also um, a mind that's surpassed or unsurpassed, exalted or not exalted, liberated or not liberated. And the instruction is very clear. One's simply to know, simply to see the mind as it actually is, recognize its state, and know it. Sounds so simple, but sometimes we get we fall for the mind's state as our uh, our current reality. We take it on as as the extent of everything that there, everything that's true about the world. So if the mind is angry, rather than recognizing that this is a mind affected by anger, we're more likely to simply be angry. We take on a sense of being, some uh, that rising and passing condition, rather than simply identifying for it for what it what it is. It's like a uh, it's like a rigged a rigged game where we keep we keep falling for the same trick over and over again. I was reminded of uh, a, a scene from my childhood. I have two older brothers, and uh, I was the youngest brother. 
And whenever they would learn something at school that was mischievous, they would play that on me. So I particularly remember my, my second oldest brother uh, making a deal with me one day um, to um, trade marbles based on coin flips. So he had a quarter and he's going to flip the coin. And we had this pile of marbles. And, you know, he'd flip it and he'd say, okay, so when I flip it, um, you know, it can either come up heads or it can come up tails. So, and, you know, whoever, whoever wins gets to have a marble out of the pile. So, so heads I win, tails you lose, okay? <laughs> and I was, I don't know, four or something. It seemed reasonable. <laughs> uh, it can either be heads or tails. Heads I win, tails you lose. And so I noticed after a while that, like, I was never winning. Like, he was getting all the marbles. And, uh, and I thought at first it was a trick of the way he was flipping. He'd flip the coin and catch it. And then he'd turn it over and he'd say, see its head, that means I win. And, or see its tail, that you, that you lose. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but I, I, started to, I started to figure out there's something, there's something wrong about this game. It doesn't really have a way for me to win. And then I complained to my mother. <laughs> and she made him give me some of the marbles. So this is, uh, uh, this, this is what our mind is doing to us. Uh, heads I win, tails you lose. So no matter, um, no matter what the mind comes up with, if we fall for it, we lose. Right? We don't actually win. Uh, there's some much worse games my brother's played on me than that. Um, but the, this is the principle of the mind uh, that, that the Buddha is trying to, to alert us to. Is uh, It's as though we've walked into a casino and the, and the odds always favor the house. It seems as though all these games are so enticing. You, know? you see like the blackjack or um, this, this uh, wheel that they spin that's got a marble on it. You, know? you just have to pick a color and you, know, you can win, you can double your money. Right? So it seems like you know, really good, a really good deal. You bet 10 bucks and you might you might lose it, but you might also double it. So, uh, my brother's instruction in this regard was educational because by the time I was probably seven, I had a deep distrust of all games. <laughs> I knew that every game my brothers or, or tried to play with me, whether it was checkers or chess or Monopoly, uh, there was some bias in the rules that were going to. Uh, that were rigged against me because I was the new guy, always the always the one that knew the least about what was going on, and uh, and so that stood me in good stead. And of course, I played all these tricks on my sisters, and so they had deep distrust of they had deep distrust of me. <laughs> but uh, they're actually pretty good at, at board games. They still love board games, but I, I didn't like any of them. I, just, I, I always felt any any kind of board game or any kind of competition was rigged, was, was biased, was set up. Uh, and whoever had the superior knowledge was highly motivated to take advantage of those with less knowledge. And there's nothing fair about it. So I just, I didn't want to play. 
So you couldn't get me to play anything. I didn't care what it was. Risk. Go fish. No. It involves any kind of game. But uh, something like, oh, maybe riding bikes. Or I can do that. That's okay. Unless it was going to be a race, in which case I knew I was going to lose, so why even try? So, um, this, that kind of created a characteristic in my, a habit of mind of being really suspicious of anything that had a, 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 a game-like or a, a, a system, a systematic-like quality to it. Uh, so, uh, any kind of school competition or anything like that, I just, I just didn't trust it. I didn't want to participate. Uh, and then I came when I came when it came to meditation. Um, it took a fairly a fairly long time because I I did trust my own understanding of things, and this this is what one of the one of the things I got out of those early experiences is that uh, it was important for me to be very skeptical and to look with a with a very kind of cynical eye at what people were telling me about what's going to happen or how this works and try to study and understand the rules of the game for myself and see if I could see any flaw in it. And a lot of what seemed like meditation instruction was telling me was to oh, maybe um, along the lines of uh, look for particular kinds of experiences to occur, um, you know, like relaxation or maybe some light arising or um, anything like that, and I would be very suspicious of it because I, I could see the mind could imagine those things, and then I could, I, I didn't want to fall for anything. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to be the dupe. And so for a long time I was actually kind of internally resistant to any kind of meditation instruction, unless it was very, very concrete. I still do well with concrete instruction. But the, uh, it, towards the end of learning how to meditate, I did pick up that point that the Buddha was making, which is not really the, uh, the system that's rigged. Uh, like the meditation instructions aren't, aren't rigged to fool you into, into thinking that something's happening, which isn't really happening. But rather, your mind is constantly fooling you into thinking that something is happening, which isn't really happening. So the, uh, that's where the rigging is happening, is that the mind is, is this rigged game. And it happens whenever we, um, whenever we think something is true about us or our situation, when we've conclusively decided this is true, like uh, people don't respect me or... Um, uh, people here are unfriendly, or um, I'm I'm no good at anything, I'm, or I'm always a failure at these kinds of things, or or uh, uh, that person doesn't like me and I don't like them. Right? These are kind of like assertions of truth that the mind will make. Um, like all politicians are evil. Now that that might actually be true, but but the uh, uh, the mind's assertion of truth is where you have to be very suspicious 
that's where your skepticism is, is well-founded. Because the mind li it actually likes to, to think it knows what's going on. You, you could almost say the mind is designed to give us a sense of confidence about what's happening in the world. If we were uncertain um, and hesitating about absolutely everything, like you know, if I if I open the door and I and I step outside the door, you know, will the ground crumble me into my feet? Or can I breathe the air out there? Uh, you know, that those kind of a, those kind of uh, uncertainties uh, would paralyze you. You couldn't do anything. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't accomplish anything. And so we have to, in order for ordinary life to happen, we have to operate with a sense of confidence that we pretty much know what's going on and feel, uh, feel as though we're able to discover the truth about situations and circumstances. So if we go walk into the grocery store wanting to buy melons, well, we're, we have a sense of confidence that we'll be able to understand the pricing system and recognize melons versus potatoes and uh, transact our business without any real difficulty. And uh, there are actually mental illnesses in which that, lot, that sense of confidence about the world is lost. Um, and a person literally it doesn't know what's happening and can't seem to figure it out. They lose contact with what's considered to be a conventional reality. So the mind's operations in that regard are functional and useful in a conventional way. Uh, but it's a mistake to take them as absolute. And this is where this is where the Buddhist practice comes in. That functional, good enough, ordinary, worldly truth about the way things are uh, includes all of our our views and opinions about ourselves, about others, about the way the world is, about history, about our personal history, about our family, about our nationality, our ethnicity, our gender, everything that we think is true about the conventional world that creates a sense of mental, mental circumstances in which we're bound to suffer when things don't uh, comport with the way that we think things should be based on all these truths. So if, uh, uh, if we think that, um, say, other people are, are inconsiderate of us, and then someone does something which is potentially not very important, but we're viewing it through this lens of other people who are inconsiderate of us, then uh, something as simple as uh, not holding the door open for you or um, putting their boots on the tray where you're going to put your boots, anything like that could, could sting, it could hurt. Uh, and you could even feel like an idiot for, for, for being stung. So there's a double sting there. Right? It's like, oh, I, you know, why am I re why am I so sensitive to everything? I shouldn't react like this. So then you're going to end up beating yourself up over over the fact that you have an emotional reaction to something. And this is just because of the mind's viewing things through these lenses of beliefs and ideas and opinions and assumed truths about the world. Most of these truths are operating at the level of. Hmm, they're kind of invisible, they're, they're subconscious. We don't, we're not fully consciously aware of all the truths, all the opinions, all the views that we have, uh, all the things that we hold to be true in the world. 
careful mental examination, you can dredge a lot of these things up. Uh, and some of them are very emotional and hardly ever get even verbalized. Uh, like, uh, uh, I had a cat once, uh, or I was acquainted with a cat once, who held the view that men are scary. Right? Of course, the cat would never like say it, couldn't say anything, obviously it's a cat, but, um, but the cat was always really shy and kind of uh, diffident around, around human men. And around women, she was comfortable. And almost certainly that was because when she was a kitten, she had been abused by some, some men. And she generalized that as those experiences to include all men. And it's like a starting point. So it's interesting that cats can differentiate between human genders very, very easily. They recognize men right away. And if they're afraid of them, they, they run and they hide. Uh, they, that cat could see me coming you know, a quarter mile away just by my stride. She recognized oh, it's, it's a man, and she hide under the bed. Um, she was a mature enough cat that you could you could sort of convince her that well maybe here's an exception. Uh, I made that my mission to convince the cat that I'm not that bad. But um, she, her view was well founded in a way. I mean, she had some terrible experiences that that informed this view, and it served her well enough. The only cost was that she didn't get petted as often, and maybe didn't get as fed as often as she might have otherwise done. But she managed to avoid any further uh, trauma from at the hands of being brutalized by men, say. So a lot of our views are like that. They're emotional. And, uh, and they're operating kind of at the animal level. Like maybe a, a view like the world's not safe or uh, uh, um, people don't care about me or... Uh, I have to really assert myself in order to get what I want. Um, uh, others are selfish. Any view like that that can be articulated, there's a lot of them. Uh, maybe I'm not worthy, or uh, is, a, is another one that we might not like, like to admit or like to see, um, but that can operate and inform a lot of what we do in our life. And it's just a view. And you can see that if you articulate something like that, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm lesser, I'm inferior, I'm, I'm no good. A view like that, uh, when, you, when you articulate it, it, it can almost sound absurd. But it, it can feel true, though. So this, this emotional level of views, uh, are, those are the ones that cause the most suffering, because they set us up. They seem true. We operate as though they're true, and they. Uh, and if we operate as though they're true, in a way, we communicate those views to others, and uh, they can they can subconsciously reinforce those views for us, because of the way their views will interact with our views. So, this often happens in relationships where uh, two people's unconscious views are coming into conflict with each other. Like there could be a mutual view that that. Um, in a relationship that you're supposed to take care of me. And if both people hold that view and neither one is taking care of the other, then those two people can end up sort of feeling really disappointed in each other. Even though they both want the same thing to be taken care of, neither one of them, um, uh, they, they might both end up uh, being on the receiving end of not getting what they want. 
And the views are never uh, dredged up and, and put on the table and seen for what they really are. Uh, they can operate in the, in the background of our minds and generate a lot of difficulty. The Western method of getting at these things is uh, uh, voluminously detailed in, in psychology manuals and books. And when, the, when these kinds of views and opinions have a, a, a profound negative impact on our lives, that's, that can be very helpful to have a professional uh, view examiner, a, a psychologist, help you come to see your views more clearly. And maybe uh, adjust your, your, the, the truth weighting that you give the, to those views. But there's a do-it-yourself method too, and that's what the Buddha is teaching. The do-it-yourself method is to simply recognize a mind affected by lust as a mind affected by lust. And a mind unaffected by lust is a mind unaffected by lust. A mind affected by hatred is a mind affected by hatred. And a mind unaffected by hatred is a mind unaffected by hatred. So all these different kinds of minds that can rise up, uh, the Buddha's instruction is simply to recognize them, to know them for what they are. And just by watching the mind in this way, the more we can do it, the more thoroughgoingly we can be uh, with our practice in this way, the, the more obvious our views, both gross and subtle, will become to us. And also the, uh, the conditioned nature of these views. So uh, like that poor cat, her view about men was conditioned by difficulties in her, in her earlier in her life, and the generalization caused her to miss opportunities, maybe even encounter other kinds of suffering that she wouldn't have otherwise done. But the cat doesn't have the ability to examine her views and to reappraise them and to see them as for what they are, and maybe set them aside or try to try to try to go them, go against them. One technique that can be really helpful in this regard is to ask yourself when you're feeling strongly about something. Like, uh, say you're having a difficult emotion, sadness, and there's a, there's a tendency to identify with the sadness. You know, I'm just, I'm really sad. I'm just depressed. I am depressed. Right? This is a, a taking on of... of an emotional state or a mind state as one's identity. I am. Uh, so, w one thing that can be helpful is to actually look for what am I being right now? What, what identity am I taking on? And see if you can identify what that is. Right? The, the, the key in this Buddhist practice is to simply identify things for what they are without becoming them. So if you see that there is becoming happening, then of course the mind is caught in this cycle of, the Buddha called the cycle of birth and death, becoming and passing away. So that if the mind becomes something, whatever arises has to pass away, eventually that will pass away. But 
in order to become something, the mind has to cling to it, has to uh, uh, enter into it in a way that, that uh, assigns a, a truthfulness to it or an all-encompassingness to the view that isn't really justified. So when we, when we take on an identity, whether it's the identity of being in a, a mood like sadness, I'm sad, or emotion like anger, I'm angry, or an identity like um, uh, one's nationality or one's ethnicity, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Irish or I'm... Uh, uh, I'm, or one's gender, I'm, I'm, I'm male. Um, these things can seem true, and I, again, they, they are functional in the world, but they're not, um, they may not necessarily be serving you to simply stop there. So what the Buddha is asking us to do, you could say, is to question these beliefs. Uh, it, can, it, it can actually be quite direct to just ask yourself, is it really true? Is it actually really completely, unambiguously, continuously true now and for all time, forever? Has it always been true? Or is it sometimes true and sometimes not true? And so uh, asking a, an open-ended question like that can sometimes kind of help you get your, your, your kind of fingernail under the flap of the, of the envelope, so to speak, so you can open it up and see more clearly what's going on inside. All of these views come into being for reasons. Uh, there's causes and conditions to them. If we look far enough back in our history, we can certainly find times when we weren't particularly identifying with, with any one of these views. So if you think, for example, that you are... Um, a progressive. Um, ask yourself if it's really true, or if it's just simply that you're something that you're sort of almost like you're pretending to be. Uh, uh, a lot of people have the experience when they were children of of dressing up in their parents' clothing, you know, wearing their shoes and putting on their coats, and uh, you know, maybe putting on makeup or something like that. Um, so we we're, we're kind of good at putting on costumes and assuming identities, and we play with it when we're children. Um, but we take it too seriously when we're adults. All the identities that we have are, are just as pretend and just as assumed as our, our childish games. Um, but there's a lot more serious consequences to it if we, don't, if we don't realize that's what's happening. So knowing the mind, watching the mind, seeing the various moods that come and go, the attitudes that come and go, the states that come and go, um, this is an instruction which is to stop being things and simply to know, to know what's happening, to know what's going on in the mind. So one stops being the, the subject of these, of these various conditions of mind. And instead, uh, you could say one is aware, or one becomes observant of, one notices, one investigates. And that's about as far as identity needs to go for this purpose, is to be the investigator, to be the knower, to be the one who knows. Because the one who knows simply knows, and there's, there's no necessity for suffering in that, because 
whatever comes and goes can be known. And when it goes, it doesn't have to be known anymore because now it's gone. This stance of being the one who knows or, or being the one who, um, who questions or who, who examines, who uh, sort of wonders whether something is really true or not, uh, and tries to, tries to probe a little further, uh, this is a, a kind of an active and dynamic way of using our mental equipment. Whereas uh, our usual status of feeling something coming up in the mind, like anger or sadness or uh, re regret or despair or, or shame or guilt or any one of these other emotions, and then taking that on as a, an identity, um, this is the mind becoming static. It, it, it takes something on and then it sort of holds it and tries to keep it in a way stable, the same. So it, in a way, so that it knows what to expect. It's kind of safe to know that you're sad because then everything makes sense. Right? The heaviness in your heart makes sense and the way that people treat you makes sense and the, 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 the color of the light coming through the window, it all makes sense because it's all sad. And your side, so that's it, it. Kind of makes the world as coherent in a way. So our, our views have this function, you could say, of of making our world sensible. Um, but they're static; they're they're kind of rigid. We tend to neglect or ignore anything that uh, contradicts our view. So if we're if we're feeling sad, and we're we're kind of clinging to that view of, of being the sad one. And if someone comes along and they're all cheerful and happy, you just you want to strangle them, right? Because they're 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 just harshing on your mood, as it were. They're, they're interfering with the with the state of being that you're kind of clinging to. And by the same token, if you're all you know boyish and bubbly and happy, and then somebody comes in who's all sad and morose, and um, you can you can feel sort of annoyed or put put upon by that person's uh, affect. Especially if they're, if they're, kind of really wearing it on their on their elbow. So we're we're affected by our moods. We're affected by the moods of others, and the the, the tendency to hang on to these things and, and make them static removes the possibility of learning anything from them. The Buddhist path is all about learning, about seeing the truth, valuing truth above identity. And this truth is a scene deeply into the non-static nature of things. Because moods come and go, because thoughts come and go, because views rise up and pass away depending on circumstances. And we, we, we're, we can't help but, but recognize that the mind is inherently dynamic and conditioned. And it doesn't actually have anything in it which one can hold on to as one's self, as one's identity. And that taking on identities is simply an act, a mental act of the mind. The more clearly this is seen, the more absurd one starts to feel it is to take on anything that's negative. So if, if the mind is 
welling up with some historical habitual state like shame or, or guilt or sadness, um, one starts to see the, the volition that's involved in seizing that and becoming that. But unless one can see that volition, one doesn't have the opportunity to change one's mind. One simply just goes through the same emotional habit of being whatever one has historically been. So this watching the mind is a, is the, is a doorway. It's a doorway to freedom from the, the, the slavery of the habits of the mind. Because as long as we don't know what's going on, it's like as if we're in this, this game where we always lose. Someone else is flipping the coin, someone else is controlling the rules, or some other force. And we don't understand why. We don't understand the rules. All we really know is it's just one damn thing after another. It's just suffering. And uh, we never really get to have what we want. Only by studying very carefully what actually happens and seeing for ourselves how the mind is this... Uh, this tricky, deceptive um, uh, force uh, which keeps fooling us and we keep falling for it. Only then can we see the opportunity to not fall, to not fall for it, to not, uh, not buy into the game of the mind presenting us with a, another identity, another, another something to be and simply say, I think I'll pass. I don't want to play this game anymore. When you're not playing that game, then there's there's a, a new kind of uh, you could you could call it a state, not quite a state, not quite a being, but a contentment, a, a, a sense of peace and well-being that can very gently rise up and sort of displace the the frantic taking on of identities that the mind can get engaged in. A sense of every like a sense of coolness or everything being okay. Because you've seen through the trick of the minds and you're not falling for it. If you forget your mindfulness and you start falling for the trick again, then you'll notice that you're suffering. And then you have the opportunity to, to wake up again to the to the truth, which is that you don't have to be those things. You don't have to suffer. It's something that you're choosing to do with your mind by, by grabbing onto these identities. And this is a... Uh, uh, this is a long education that, that one has to... that one enters into. Uh, it doesn't all come in a single go, uh, in a single moment. There can be really profound moments of insight uh, where, you, where you get a, a real hit of how this works. Um, but we're, we're kind of, we've got really deep roots of, of this habit of falling for it, of deciding that uh, this is true or that is true or, you know, uh, this is how things are. And when we believe something like that, then at that moment we're not investigating, we're not seeing the truth, we're not trying to understand what's really going on. We're simply believing, we're, we're suspending our disbelief, and uh, we're grasping at certainty. And that's solidity and staticness. Uh, and the Buddhist keep, keeps teaching us about anicca, about uh, 
constant change and uncertainty, the uncertainty of things. Uh, even though it doesn't sound very reassuring, this uncertainty is actually the, the, the way out of suffering. To see it, to see this manifestation in the mind over and over again, uh, it's the it's the, the place where we actually get to see how the rules are made up by the mind and why we keep losing because we're not seeing that part. So I'll leave those those thoughts for your consideration. <coughs> Andamayandamakatha sadhukarangadamase sadhukarangadamase sadhukarangadamase